But the name of the movie comes from a quote in a George Eliot book called Middlemarch. And the quote goes like this. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. And that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life in rest in unvisited tombs. I mean, that is an incredibly powerful quote. This idea that the world and the growing good of the world is dependent on unnoticed, insignificant people who rest in unvisited tombs and yet contributed in mighty ways to kind of the story of life. It is really this idea of living simple and unknown lives and yet doing so with great influence and power inspiring others to follow in your wake. I think it captures the idea that all of these kind of ordinary moments are infused with sacredness and that often the overlooked people are the true difference makers in the world. And this has been an idea that has captivated us for some time. It is the idea of this new series that we're going into, which is called Hidden, This idea that really we can be the kinds of people that live a hidden and powerful and meaningful life. And this idea is bedded in the scriptures in the New Testament. In Colossians 3, 3, it says this, For you died, and now your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so as we've been reading the Bible over the last several months, we have been trying to read with a lens or a focus, with an awareness to the unnoticed people. People responsible for this growing good of the world, people responsible for this biblical meta-narrative that we read about, and yet are people that barely got a mention Maybe as you're reading through the scriptures, if you read quick, you wouldn't notice that they're even present in the text because maybe they get a sentence or two. Or maybe their particular small part of the grand story is in some obscure passage that you haven't read in quite a while. And it is this idea that the kingdom is filled with all of these kind of people that make a significant difference, live in unvisited tombs, and become the great cloud of witnesses that all of us are inspired to follow. And it is with that idea in mind that we began to ask the question, what does it look like to lead that kind of life? What are the qualities necessary to be a person who leads a hidden life? Things like humility, generosity, hospitality, a kindness, a gentleness, maybe things like understanding that it is in the most menial of tasks that you can do some of the most holy work. The fact that the sacred is in everything is about living with deep purpose. And this morning we start that series and I have the privilege of taking the first quality and asking 
Who is a person that exhibits this particular quality and how is it that they live into this aspect of a hidden life? And the first quality for this morning is the idea of being rooted or grounded in something. Now, when you think of rooted and grounded, often you think of a tree kind of putting its roots into a place. And so maybe the theology of place comes to mind, being a person that's in a particular neighborhood, in a particular city, in a particular place of employment, and in those spaces is grounded and rooted with people. And I think that is absolutely true. And I think there are other ways that uh, our particular character this morning embodies this. And the character that we're looking at is King Josiah. I'm not going to take a poll on how many people uh, remember who King Josiah is, uh, but he is a semi-recognizable character and is found in 2 Kings chapters 21, 22, 23. And uh, King Josiah shows up on the scene at a time when Israel's up to their typical waywardness. They're not quite going by the rules. In fact, uh, the text starts off in chapter 21 saying this. It's describing the kings and says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And this is the description of his life. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then it goes on to describe these despicable practices. He rebuilt the high places, erected altars. He built altars in the house of the Lord. He burned his son as an offering. Happy Father's Day. And used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. That is the description of his reign. Just about nothing else is told about this particular king. But this encompasses 55 years of the people of Israel. Immediately after that, the text says this. Amon was 22 years old, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as his father had done. So you've got this lineage coming of evil and uh, a, like a, a nation running amok, caring not about the ways of Yahweh. And then Josiah arrives on the scene. And here's what we have for his introduction. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. Put that in your mind for a moment. Eight years old, and now you're the king of a nation. Eight years old, and he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. I mean, that is an incredible statement about what would essentially be on his tombstone. A person who lives as king of a nation, and it says that he did not waver to the right or the left, but what he did was right in the sight of God is an incredible statement. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what did he do that would get him that kind of statement? If you compare him to the other kings, what made his life significant? And I want to offer a few things that the text seems to indicate were essential to the life of King Josiah. The first one is found in 2 Kings 22, verse 3. It says this, In the 18th year of King Josiah, 
and I'm just for the sake of time and the fact that I cannot pronounce half these names, I'm just going to abbreviate this section. So the king sent the secretary to the house of the Lord, and the high priest said to the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And the secretary read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes, and the king commanded the priest, go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. So Josiah's eight when he takes over. When he is 18, he sends the secretary on a little mission. That mission was to go to the house of the Lord. At the house of the Lord, he finds the scrolls, reads it. The, the secretary feels like, oh man, something's not right. I need to read this to the king. Reads it to the king. And so for the first time, likely, the king Josiah hears the words of God. His response is immediately to break into stripping his clothes, repenting, crying out, asking for forgiveness. And he has almost a sense of awe. He has this profound realization that what is being read to him in that moment is like infused with the divine, that God is up to something in this teaching and is requiring something of the king. And because it's required of the king, it is now required of the whole nation. The psalmist gets at this same idea when in Psalm 1 he makes this statement Happy or blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the ways of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers, but blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The outcome of that is he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. All that he does, he prospers. The psalmist is describing a person committed to this idea of meditating and delighting him or herself on the word of God. And meditation really carries this uh, idea of to speak something or to mutter something. It's not what we think of when we just kind of say, I'm meditating by zoning out, clearing my mind. It's kind of the opposite. It's filling your mind and continuing to mutter or continuing to speak to yourself the word of God. That's kind of the idea of to regularly teach yourself the teachings of Yahweh, to repeat them, to run them in your mind all day, to keep saying them to yourself and to mutter them. Thomas Brooks makes this statement about the difference between Bible reading and meditation. He says, remember that it is not hasty reading, but serious meditation on holy and heavenly truths that make them prove sweet and profitable to the soul. It is not the mere touching of a flower by the bee that gathers honey, but her abiding for a time on the flower that draws out the sweet. It is not he that reads most, but he that meditates most that will prove to be the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christian. What he's getting at by communicating this is that it is us as followers of Yahweh that continue to mutter, to continue to speak to ourselves the word of God over and over that find ourselves rooted and grounded in something that has deep meaning.
King Josiah embodies a second idea, and that is to be rooted and grounded in the Lord. Text says this, and then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests, and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. If uh, we were in a Bible lesson we would probably communicate what is one of the more significant words in the text, and hopefully what would be resonating in your mind would be the idea all. That all of the people, great and small, all of the people gathered, all of the people listened, all the words were read, all of them followed, everyone agreed to the covenant. So there's this idea that he is embodying for everyone what it means to be grounded in or rooted in the Lord, to say that we as a nation, we as a group of people will choose to follow Yahweh. What's interesting is how the Bible kind of repeats these themes, and you see this similar theme repeated in Jeremiah. Sounds like the one we just read. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord, or whose trust is in the Lord. They shall be like a tree planted by water, sending out its roots by the stream. It shall not fear when heat comes, and its leaves shall stay green. In the year of drought it is not anxious, and it does not cease to bear fruit. It is this same imagery that is being used. So blessed is the man who delights in the word, but in this case, blessed is the man or woman who trusts in the Lord, that places their wholehearted dependence on God. And Paul echoes this same idea in Colossians 2 when he says this, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith. What Paul is saying is that we are, should be desiring to be rooted and grounded in Christ. That the very core of who we are should put all of our trust and dependence on God, which takes us to the third and final thing that I think Josiah teaches us. And that is to be rooted and grounded in love. In 2 Kings chapter 23, it says this, to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments. When asked what are his commandments, Jesus responded this way. And he said to the man asking him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. The second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He's capturing this idea that we are to be rooted and grounded in love. Love with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. To love God, who we just described as placing all of our trust and dependence on. But then likewise, or equal unto it, or some would say the same as, 
right? Especially if we echo what John was saying in 1 John, that it, you cannot love God whom you've not seen if you cannot love your brother or sister whom you've seen. And it is this idea of love of God, that the very actions that we embark on throughout the day, regardless of how menial they are, I mean, if you looked at that video, regardless if you're beating out wheat or if you're like gathering or if you're taking care of the chickens or if you're like going on an errand, whatever it is we're doing, we can do it in a posture of love. Brother Lawrence, who most of you I assume know as Brother Lawrence instead of Nicholas Herman, a peasant who joined a Carmelite monastery in Paris, makes these statements. We ought not to be weary of doing little things for the love of God, who regards not the greatness of the work, but the love with which it is performed. Brother Lawrence, one of the unique things about him is he moves to this monastery, kind of gives up his way of life, and instead of being uh, the priest that goes around and does all of the sacred things, he's the one that's assigned all of the the insignificant things, the things that are passed down from one to another. They're like, I don't want to do this. Give it to Brother Lawrence. I don't want to do this. Give it to him. And he lives throughout his day in such a way that he is asked at the end of life or near the end of life to talk about his experience, which is where we get the book, Practicing the Presence of God. And he talks about what it means to live each moment out of a posture of love so that everything that's done is an act of worship. He goes on to say this, nor is it needful that we should have great things to do. This is kind of that unnoticed life. We can do little things for God. I turn the cake that is frying on the pan for love of Him. And that done, if there is nothing else to call me, I prostrate myself in worship before Him who has given me grace to work. Afterwards, I rise happier than a king. It is enough for me to pick up but a straw from the ground for the love of God. This idea that whether doing dishes, changing a tire, changing diapers, picking something up, whatever it is that we do can be done with a posture of love in such a way that it becomes this act of worship which in itself means you're rooted and grounded in God and rooted and grounded in love. Paul echoes that same idea when he says that he's praying and he asks that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend the height, the depth, the width of God's love. That the very love we're supposed to be living out is only possible if we are infused with God's love for us. I want to leave you with one kind of final quote from Brendan Manning. He says this, and I thought it appropriate for Father's Day. He said, if you took all of the love of all the best mothers and fathers who ever lived, all the goodness kindness, patience, fidelity, wisdom, tenderness, strength, and love, and united all those virtues in one person, 
that person would only be a faint shadow of the love and mercy in the heart of God for you and me. The only way we can live a grounded and rooted life is to first recognize that we are rooted and grounded in this divine love of God. That he has such a deep fondness for you. That he cares for you with such completeness that it is out of that space that you can live with love. I'll be honest with you, when I was preparing uh, this particular talk and looking at King Josiah, um, And starting this series, I thought to myself, who is an obscure person that can embody what it means to be rooted and grounded? And when I found King Josiah, I was like, this is awesome. This is amazing. And then the more I kept reading, studying, thinking about the points, I started to realize that the primary points that I would communicate this morning is that you are to be rooted and grounded in the Bible, that you're to be rooted and grounded in God, and that you're to be rooted and grounded in love. And those things don't sound as sexy as I would like them to sound, if I'm honest. Like, typically, and you know me, I've been doing this for a while, when I give a talk, I want it to be coming from a unique angle, or something a little bit different, or something that you haven't heard before, or something that isn't just a simple reminder. And yet, the more I kept digging into it, the more that I'm like, oh man, this just feels like Sunday School 101. God, Jesus, Bible, do that, love everyone, and go. Have a great week, happy Father's Day, eat some meat, right? Like, that would be, that would be the talk. And I was like, so kind of disappointed by that. And then it occurred to me that isn't that actually kind of the point. That is the point of a hidden life. The point of a simple and yet beautiful, a profound and inspiring small life is that you do the little things and you do them well. That the things that carry the most significance and importance are the very things that you're grounded in. And it isn't flashy and it won't appear on headlines and it won't be on Twitter and it won't trend and who cares. Because the things that make for the growing good of the world, the things that mean that someday people will recognize the impact that is had by a generation of people who rest in unvisited tombs will be because they grounded themselves in a love of God, a deep love for the scriptures, and the ability to live with love. And so as bland as that may sound, it is the most important thing, and I think it highlights where we are going over this next like 10 weeks, that we want to be a people that live an unnoticed and yet beautifully powerful life. And may that be who we are as a community. Let me pray for us this morning, and then we are going to, out of God's love for us, kind of echo back in song our love for him. Let's pray. God, we sometimes want, um, at least I do, uh, for the thing that I'm participating in and engaging in to be new and fresh and different and unique, and yet the whole point of what we are exploring over these next 10 weeks is this idea that it is in the small and the mundane and the insignificant that the most powerful things happen. God, may we at New Community be a part of the growing good of the world. 
May we be a part of your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may someday we be a part of this great cloud of witnesses that is continuing to echo into the next generation and the generation after and the generation after of what it means to follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.